0: The rising sentiment in the global conversation is that banks must assume accountability for the financial industry's impact on the environment. To help them do that, a new wave of startups has launched over the past few years, targeting the intersection of climate risks, sustainability, ESG, investments, and banking. But how do we move from greenwashing to making a difference? Tearsheet's inaugural Banking on the Planet conference brings together leaders from the banks set out to make a difference and the fintechs and technology providers enabling those promises. So join us virtually at the Banking on the Planet Conference 2022 on July 26th for a day of critical dialogue on the responsibility bestowed upon the financial industry and the players rising to the challenge. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Green Finance Podcast. I'm your host, Yulia Chutina, senior reporter at Tearsheet. Tearsheet. Today we're talking about banks and their role in the climate crisis. It's been a long relationship and like most relationships, it's complicated. Big banks historically supported the global fossil fuel industry through massive amounts of funding, but now they're being pressured to change, which happens slowly for banks. They don't want any overnight actions, but they also can't avoid it forever. In the not too distant future, banks will be required to disclose the carbon footprint of their lending and investment operations, for example. Regulators are already sending some pretty strong signals towards making the financial system more transparent and accountable. And many of you might have seen the headlines over the past few weeks on the investigations that government authorities are conducting around greenwashing claims by some of the biggest banks in the world. So, to help me unpack all of this, I've called Chris Skinner, a financial technology expert, global commentator, best-selling author of multiple books, and the website The Financer. Chris is out with a new book called Digital for Good. The book explores how financial systems influence the economy, the purpose of banks, and how they impact society and the planet. Well, there's lots to discuss, so let's get right to it. Thanks, Chris, for joining me today. I'm super excited to talk about the banking system and the climate crisis, which is the overarching theme of this podcast, and also the main subject of your upcoming book, Digital for Good, which we'll be touching upon a little bit later. I'd like to start with getting your airplane view of the current situation. What do you think is the banking and finance industry's current role in the climate crisis?
1: Banking is at the heart of enabling the crisis or disabling the crisis. And the reason for that is that they provide all the funding for fossil fuel firms and fracking and other things that are affecting the stability of planet Earth. And if they squeeze that funding or withdrew that funding, then it would change behaviours and move a lot of the industries that are creating greenhouse gas emissions to actually being focused on far more on renewables. Now, that is happening, but it's just not happening fast enough. And the issue is that banks make most of their profit from supporting those companies' activities. By way of example, I think about 14% of all the loans of European banks, the biggest one, European banks, go to firms are creating issues for the climate. And that's something that the banks have to understand. and work out how they can still make profit whilst changing behaviors.
0: Earlier this year, shareholders, as some of the biggest banks in the US, voted on climate resolutions that proposed to stop investments in new fossil fuel projects by the end of the year. The bank's management fought these resolutions, urging shareholders to vote against them in public proxy statements. As a result, only around 11% of shareholders voted in favor of these resolutions that asked to stop fossil fuel funding. What do you make of this situation?
1: Well, obviously, if shareholders put pressure on the leadership of the financial companies that they're investing in, that has an effect. Um, And there are, as you say, particularly in pension fund community and the um, asset management community, pressure being put on financial firms to think more about ESG, environment, social governance. Um, There's also equally the activist consumer who has less of an impact, except when they um, demonstrate outside banks' annual general meetings, which is something that's quite common now, particularly outside the UK banks. Um, So the problem is that the banks then try and demonstrate that they are turning green and doing a lot of sustainability and uh, environmental projects. But when you lift the hood, you find that normally that's just PR and marketing. It's not actually anything that's making an impact on the bottom line and the behaviors of their customers. Um, Some are taking it more seriously. So I always go back to a Bloomberg interview I saw with Anna Bota, who's the Executive Chair of Santander Group. And she was talking to Bloomberg, and this is about 18 months ago, and said, You've got to also understand that you can't just switch off the funding just like that. Um, In that, by way of example, I live in Poland, so I'm just outside Warsaw, and Poland is one of the biggest polluters in Europe. They use huge amounts of coal. You can't just stop the coal overnight. You can't just say, turn it off, because that would mean Poland would implode. What you have to do is create a plan for net zero 2050, ideally 2030, depending on. I hate by your view, and get the movement to renewables far quicker through the financial system.
0: We definitely need a plan, and there's agreement on that front. But as usual, the devil is in the details. Banks most likely want the plan that hurts the least, and there's also the element of trust. Like, is there a genuine interest from banking executives to move from being part of the problem to being part of the solution?
1: From a heart view, yes. From a head view, no. (laughs) Because I mentioned greenwashing, and actually the US banks are the biggest culprits of doing greenwashing, from BlackRock Investments through to JPMorgan Chase, the biggest funders of fossil fuels and um, greenhouse gas companies is coming from the US banks, the top four. So JPMorgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, Bank of America, and then behind them in Europe, HSBC and Barclays Bank. And the reason for that is, as I say, they're making huge amounts of profit out of those investments and the loans that support those industries. Um, And so there's a real conflict. Uh, It's like a schizophrenia, which is on the websites, you'll find loads of messages around. We're focused on sustainability and the environment. And yet, as I mentioned earlier, underneath the headline, they're not doing anything at all.
0: So then forgetting about all the marketing and all the PR and just focusing on the reality of the situation, do you think it's fair to draw a line and say that big banks are currently making the climate crisis worse?
1: I think I, I, I can safely say that and that since the Paris Accord of 2015, something like $4.6 trillion through 2021 was provided from the top 60 banks into fossil fuel and fracking firms. Um, but there is pressure coming through. And it's not just from activist investors and activist consumers, but companies. Act- and so I've spent the last 15 years talking about fintech nonstop, um, which is to me just the integration of technology and finance. And now with my latest book, I'm talking about how can we use technology and finance to make the world a better place, which was inspired by a poster I found actually in uh, Hangzhou, China, um, as a quote from Jack Ma, who's the founder of Alibaba and the Ant Financial Group. Um, and it just struck me you know, when I saw the poster, which said, um, We need to make the planet better and society uh, um, better, that that was a really good sentiment. So when I look at the fintech community, of which Ant Group is, is one, but there are so many others, and you know, when you talk to the challenger banks, the neo banks around the world, their agenda is all about financial inclusion, about making the world and society a better place, focusing on um, offsetting the way in which your lifestyle through your money shows your behaviours, to encouraging consumers actively to behave better. So, you know, take a bus or cycle to work or walk don't drive, don't take a taxi. And it's those sorts of things that are raising awareness immensely. And and, and that activist competition um, isn't just a speck in the distance. There's actually quite a lot of companies from Starling Bank through Monzo, New Bank in South America, um, Chime and others um, that are really creating a difference of thinking.
0: So how can we make the most out of this new mentality that the fintech industry is injecting into finance what role does technology play here, for example, as most of the innovation in this space has been driven by technology?
1: Well, technology makes it really transparent as to how companies are behaving uh, if, if you're looking in this space. So a figure that struck me when I started investigating these ideas, which was five years ago, was that um, the greenhouse gas emissions are produced mainly by just 100 large companies, which are the BP's and the Shell's and the Exxons as well. 71% are produced by just 100 companies, almost half just by 25 companies. So then you look at those companies, who's behind those companies from the financial backing viewpoint. You can find that out easily through the network now um, because so much is transparent uh, thanks to search engines. Um, And what I found, for example, is BlackRock Investments, and and this figure is now out of date, so it probably has changed because Larry Fink, who's their leader, is talking a lot more about environmentalism these days. But just a couple of years ago, um, they said that they were investing in sustainable projects. But when you actually looked at what that meant as a definition, 97% of their investments were going into non-sustainable projects as discovered through investigations of various research companies who publish their findings on the network. Now, I always question findings on the network because some of them are just scams and spams and they're not real. But regardless, when you when you see something that doesn't look right, you can very quickly get the facts. It um, doesn't take long, lots of research for free out there, and then you can act upon it. And that's where Extinction Rebellion and... Others are starting to step in to say, we're going to shine the light on what these guys are doing and make sure people are far more aware of it, which is really bad PR for the bank. But it's a good way of actively protesting. And what's interesting is, um, for example, Gail Bradbrook, who's a co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, um, I regularly host on my blog these days with a monthly column because I want to have her voice heard and at least have the conversation. And her latest um, blog that she wrote for me was about breaking the windows in Barclays Bank branches and headquarters, and then said, this is not a crime, because act, active prot- protest, as long as you're not damaging people um, and killing people, is allowed. Um, and that's what the suffragettes did a century ago to get the vote for woman, um, you know, active protest. And that's what Extinction Rebellion are doing today.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's really amazing to see how people have rallied behind this mission to bring more accountability to the financial system and really took it upon themselves to help steer the conversation in the right direction. However, when we talk about accountability and transparency, what do you think the role of the government is here? I mean, no matter how many windows we break down, don't we still need a top-down approach?
1: The financial system and the government system work hand-in-hand. Hand. Um, economies prosper if the financial system is effective and works, and they fail if the financial system fails. So governments want finance to be um, you know, successful and prosperous. At the same time, the financial system wants to have the government support the way in which they're behaving. Uh, and I think the most... Difficult example of this is in Norway. I run a group across Nordic financial, uh, sorry, the the Nordic region, and um, it's a a group called NFI, Nordic Future Innovation. And in Norway, um, huge movement towards sustainable transport and services. Uh, It's the leader in Europe in electric cars and renewables. And at the same time, their sovereign wealth fund makes all their money out of oil. So, or or have done so big conflict. The government's not going to shut down that revenue stream. And yet at the same time, their society wants to have a environmental future, which is friendly. It's a big conflict.
0: There's definitely some sort of paradox happening. Also kind of showing the dark side of capitalism. You actually talk about capitalism and purpose a lot in your book, Digital for Good. Capitalist societies have been driven so far by short-term profits, mostly focusing on returns for shareholders and willing to compromise on everything else. Do you think there's going to be any change here? Like, how do we change the economic system to include the environment?
1: Well, stakeholder capitalism was rising in the 2010s and culminated maybe in the business roundtable led by Jamie Dimon, the chief executive chair of JP Morgan Chase. Delivering a white paper talking about stakeholder capitalism in 2019, um, saying that you know the focus has to be not just return to shareholder, but return to society, uh, and and also return to community, and um, and return to the wellness of our planet. So a much wider brief, and also return to customers and people who work for, for the institutions. Um, it's it's a nice thing to say, to deliver is much harder because if you had things that would do good for society and the planet but didn't return what you have to deliver to the shareholder to maintain their support, then the model falls down. But I think it is changing because I think a lot of the shareholders, going back to what you said before around um, investors, asset managers, pension funds, feeling that this is important. I mean, one of the things that happened in the meeting I chaired around this subject is a pension fund manager stood up and said, I'm really worried I won't have anyone to pay a pension to in the future because of, of the way we're abusing the planet. And for a pension fund, that's not a good thing to think about. So you know, we, we need to change our ways now, but it's, it's, it's weird because I've, I've been talking about um, climate in a financial context for 30 years almost, um, in terms of meetings and presentations that I've been listening to. And yet we're still caught in this terrible loop around shareholder capitalism. moving to stakeholder capitalism and take the investment community that support the financial system to make that happen.
0: You argue in your book that banks need a higher purpose and that there's also a need for a stakeholder purpose that makes sense. So how do you think purpose can be translated into something more tangible and quantifiable?
1: When you look at some of the newer companies and within the book, um, Discovery Group from South Africa, Monzo and others are interviewed and I asked them about their purpose, and they have very clear purpose. In Discover Group, it's around use wealth to make health. So that's the, how they came up with things like Vitality, which is use a Fitbit, and if you say that you're going to the gym, and we can they can actually monitor that through the connection to the Fitbit or whatever other health device you use, then your premiums are lowered. Um, you may have lent the Fitbit to a friend; that's another story, <laughs> but. It's a great idea. You know, in Monzo, it's about financial services should be accessible for everybody. And they come up with a number of ideas, which include, for example, bank accounts for homeless people. You wouldn't give a bank account to someone who had no fixed abode. But if they had a guardian who guaranteed their account, you could do that, which is now how, in fact, HSBC and others are starting to come up with those ideas. I think the problem with the large financial institutions is that they're... 100 200 300 years old and they've lost that sense of identity and purpose and those values because it maybe was there with the founders um just as it is with these founders of new financial firms today but then over time it's been lost and twisted and it's become pure around profit and bonus rather than around society and um the wellness of the planet um that as I say, can, can change and, and is on the agenda of the management. I mean, when I, when I talk to any of the CXOs of the large financial firms, they say, Chris, you know, we really understand the issues. It's just that we can't change a whole organization of our own with you know several hundreds of thousands of people overnight. We have to do it over time, just to, in the same way in which they can't change their clients overnight. They have to do it over, over time. And the real thing, going back to your regulatory viewpoint, Is can they do that in time? And specifically, can they find a purpose that's not just a piece of PR and marketing, but one they truly believe in?
0: So then, do you think regulation is a key component of defining a purpose for the entire system, rather than leaving everybody to just find it by themselves?
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean, banks very rarely do uh, what they feel they should do, unless they're told to do it. And um, that's actually a core part of the traditional financial system that, you know, until the government regulates it, it's it's, it's an option. And if it doesn't make enough money, then they don't take the option.
0: I've seen some studies recently which mentioned that executives are often caught in the middle between sustainability demands of the board, shareholders. Then you have customer expectations. And then there's also their job description, which asks them to deliver returns. In your conversations with people in the industry, have they voiced concerns like this? What do they find to be the biggest challenges?
1: I certainly find that there's lots of dialogue. Um, A good example is, again, pre-pandemic, when you went to Davos or to the United Nations, you would find a lot of leaders of financial firms and governments in the room having those discussions around ESG and the climate emergency And we probably all remember Greta Thunberg standing up at Davos and saying, you know, you're not doing the right thing. So they're very aware of it. And equally, the people who run these firms and these countries, um, you have to remember that many of them are parents with children or grandchildren. So they're not immune to what their kids are saying to them or their grandchildren are saying to them. Um, I think the greatest challenge for all of us is how can we work as a, um, collaboration and and a network, and, and that's where I I've come back to te- technology, because you know technology doesn't recognise country borders or um, you know, the agendas of corporations. That it recognises the voice of the people, and uh, and that's where I think the biggest impact is starting to come through. Not just the voice of the people, but the voice of those companies that are hearing it and actively responding to it, which is often new startup companies. In my presentations today, I talk about the fact that I've been referencing digital transformation for a long time, um, maybe since before you were born, unfortunately. But it's become an imperative, particularly in the last decade. And now if a financial firm hasn't done digital transformation, they're kind of behind the eight ball because we're now moving on to how can we use digital transformation to make the world a better place. And that's going to make a huge difference, I think, for the winners in the next decade
0: to read the transcript of our conversation, head over to tearsheet.co. If you want to know more about the intersection of finance and sustainability, you can subscribe to our free Green Finance newsletter in your inbox every other week to get more insights and research into this topic. That's also where I'll be featuring every new Green Finance podcast episode, so sign up to stay up to date with all of our content. Thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Green Finance Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be out with a new episode every two weeks, so I'll catch you at the next one.